This is exactly right. This story contains adult content and language. Listener discretion is advised. It turned out that every door I pushed, I walked in and there were these ghosts, if you will, saying, well, what the heck took you so long? We've just been sitting here waiting for you to figure out we're part of the story, too. I'm Kate Winkler-Dawson, a nonfiction author and journalism professor in Austin, Texas. I'm also the host of the historical true crime podcast, Tenfold More Wicked, and the co-host of the podcast, Buried Bones on Exactly Right. I've traveled around the world interviewing people for the show, and they are all excellent writers. They've had so many great true crime stories, and now we want to tell you those stories with details that have never been published. Tenfold More Wicked presents Wicked Words is about the choices that writers make, good and bad. It's a deep dive into the stories behind the stories. A writer's stepfather is a researcher in a prison when he meets a prisoner, and they'll change their lives forever. This is a tragic true crime tale about regret. Lots of regret. Could one decision have saved the life of a police officer later on? Author Lisa Belkin tells us her very personal story from her book, Genealogy of a Murder, Four Generations, Three Families, One Fateful Night. The story began over breakfast. The story began with a story. And my stepfather had just read another book of mine and had sat down to this breakfast he just made in the new kitchen he shared in his new marriage with my mother. And he said, you know, your book reminds me of a story. And he started to talk for a good 45 minutes, telling me a tale that it seems he had not told often. It was new to my mother about how he was 30 years old. He was a fairly newly minted physician. He was in the army in the 1950s, late 1950s to early 1960. And he was sent not to war, not to East Germany, which is where most doctors were being sent then, but to a penitentiary, the Stateville Penitentiary in Chicago, Illinois. And he was there to run experiments on prisoners. I'll tell you, I almost interrupted him there, you know, the way you do to show him what I knew about medical experiments and how that, well, that wouldn't be permitted today. And instead, I kept my mouth shut. Mm -hmm. And he started to tell me about his friendship with one particular prisoner and how he recognized himself in this man. They shared interests. They had deep conversations. And he finished telling me this 45-minute story with, a lot of rabbit holes and detours. And I looked at him and I said, well, you know, I have to write about this, don't you? (laughs) And he said, well, if you must. And that's where this book began. And nine and a half years later, it came out. But it was, it all began with a story, which is interesting because it's a story about the importance of stories in a way. And it evolved from there. 
let's talk about the names real quick. So the killer that we're talking about is Joseph DeSalvo, who was well-known, is that right, by the time this happened? By the time this happened, he was well-known to authorities. After it happened, he was well-known to everyone in Stamford, Connecticut. I mean, this this shooting became a huge, huge deal. Mm -hmm. And then the police officer was David Troy, Mm -hmm. who was well-known in Stamford, Connecticut for different reasons. He was the friendly beat cop that everyone in the neighborhood knew. And then the doctor was Alvin Tarloff, known to me as Al, who ended up marrying my mother many, many years later. And he became well-known after this. He became sort of a force in the medical world after this, arguably as a result of it. Much of his work was what we're talking about, trying to figure out what it is that happens to people young that determines who they are, social determinants of health, it's called. And because of this event, he spent a lifetime trying to figure out what makes us who we are and how a society can try and help early on. So yes, so Joe DeSalvo was my shooter, David Troy was my cop, Al Tarloff was my my doctor, and I do think of all of them as mine. Okay. That's an interesting concept. Why is that? Just because you became so entrenched in their stories, you felt like you have some sort of, not ownership, but you have an investment and you've done more for these three men than anybody else had with biography. Right. And because I think when you spend this much time writing so deeply about people, you you feel an obligation to get it right. You feel an obligation to write it through their eyes, to, to as much crawl in their head as you can so that you are seeing and reasoning the way they did at the time. I felt the added obligation to the families, one of which was theoretically mine. I mean, my mother married into it, but was now mine. And the cops' kids, who I I felt a deep responsibility to. So where where do we start with the story? Is it in the penitentiary or where is it, do you think? The story of the murder starts in the Stateville Penitentiary where Joseph DeSalvo had been imprisoned and Al Tarloff was then stationed as a doctor where the army was running experiments on prisoners. There was something called the U.S. Army um, Malaria Drug Trials that were conducted not exclusively, but but quite largely at the Stateville Penitentiary in Chicago. And the army was desperate for a treatment for malaria because malaria was decimating their troops. It had been a problem during World War I. It had been a problem during Korea. And now in 1958, by the time my stepfather got there, it was still a problem and the experiments were still ongoing. And now they were facing Vietnam. The goal was to find something that would keep their troops on their feet rather than hospitalized with malaria. And prisons are really good places to do experiments on people because you can control for all the factors, what they eat, what the climate is, make sure they show up. Hmm. And so Al ran these experiments. They would later be declared unethical, unconscionable, and illegal and stopped by Congress But at the time, my stepfather, who was very interested in doing the right thing at all times and studied it carefully, really believed, and I think the prisoners did too, that they were doing something patriotic for the nation and for its troops. So prisoners were the subjects of the experiment. They were given malaria and then they were given drugs to treat the malaria. 
They also were training as lab techs, as nurses in various professions that they could take with them out of the penitentiary. And Joseph DeSalvo was both a subject of the experiments and a lab trainee. And so he and Al worked side by side, got to know each other well. Can you get to know somebody well when one of you is a prisoner and the other goes home to their family every night? But it felt like a friendship. It it felt like intellectual conversation. And Joe asked Al for help with the parole board. And Al not only wrote a letter, which would be the easiest, simplest thing to do, but also being the man I came to know as my stepfather, he researched everything about it. He learned that then as now, the things that make you succeed on parole are not just wanting to be better, but having a job when you got out, a place to live, and getting out of the water you swam in. So Al found him that job, found him that place to live, and found all of those things in Connecticut, which is where Al grew up and which was far away from Chicago, which is where Joe committed all his crimes. And Joe went off to Norwalk, Connecticut, and did incredibly well. And then for reasons that are intricate, I find fascinating, and well into the story, he began to falter. He reached out to my stepfather for help. It was at a moment where Al could not help him. And Joe and Adam bought a gun and held up a tavern. And a police officer who's by this point in the reading, you've come to know fairly well as well, happened to be on duty that night when he should have been off, happened to take this call when he had been assigned another one, happened to do a series of things that ended up with the two of them facing off in a dark alley. Tell me why Joseph DeSalvo was there to begin with. I know you said he has a long rap sheet, lots of crime in the Chicago area. Why? Is it because he was a twin and he was the second born and he was always treated as second and always trying to prove that that he, you know, with a lot of bluster was worthy? Was it because his father was a motorcycle racing star in 1908 who got clonked on the head during a race. And the write-up includes the fact that you could hear the clonk in the top part of the stands. Mm -hmm. And his family describes his whole personality as changing. So he was a lousy father, probably because he had a traumatic brain injury. We would know that today. And tortured his son in many ways. So the kid was, you know, stealing from other children at school by the time he was eight Or was it because he fell in with a group of friends when he was a teenager and started holding up bars? Whatever it was, his rap sheet said it was because he had a sort of lifelong habit of taking things that weren't his, starting with grade school, you know, lunch money and ending up with cars at gunpoint. He was not the kind of guy you want to meet in the dark. And... Yet, you listen to his his talk with psychiatrists in prison and his talks with Al side by side in a lab at the penitentiary, and he was smart as could be, well-read, quoted poetry, quoted philosophy, huge fan of history. And so why was Joe there? He was there because he was an armed robber but it was, as always, much more complicated than that. 
Were there violent crimes in this go-round when he was in the penitentiary when Al knew him? There was armed robbery. Mm -hmm. There was no physical injury to anyone. There was debate among him and the others who held up the last tavern about who fired the gun into the mirror over the bar. Mm -hmm. So it could have been Joe, but I don't know. He had never, he was not in any fights in prison. He was never accused of hurting anyone, at least physically. And interestingly, Al did not know his complete history when he vouched for him. And effectively, that's what you do when you write a letter to the parole board. I mean, technically, Al's letter to the parole board said, I have trained him as a lab tech and he is skilled and he is among the best that I've seen, and I am confident that he is prepared to go do this job in the real world. Those were the parameters of his letter, but the effect of writing that letter says, I vouch for this man. But the way it worked, or at least the way Al thought it worked, was you don't ask the details of someone's rap sheet because you are saying, this is the man that I see now. You, parole board, need to figure out the rest. All I can tell you is who I see now and who Al saw at the moment that he stepped forward and said, yes, I think he can go successfully do this job, was a man who frankly made him think of himself. Mm -hmm. So no, Al did not know the details of what Joe had done, was somewhat appalled, but I never got a straight answer out of him, never thought to ask, felt he wasn't supposed to ask, felt that that wasn't the point. The point was, who are you now? Hmm. Maybe a little of all those things. Tell me about the time span we're talking about. Is this years? Is this months? And also tell me about the process of training an inmate in a skill like this, a specialized skill like being a lab tech. Al met Joe in 1958, summer of 58, and Joe was released in May of 60. So they they had at least an acquaintance of several years. They spent every day together because, you know, weekends don't exist in a penitentiary. Al came into the office at least once a day, including weekends. He was in the army. This isn't your typical job. And they worked side by side in a small laboratory that had been a jail cell. It had been a prison cell. So that's how big a space we're talking. So side by side is really side by side. Mm -hmm. And when they weren't talking about the science, they were talking about what they were reading, about local sports. They talked about everything but Al's family and Joe's history. Those things were, I don't think explicitly, but simply understood as non-starters. So they talked nonstop for a good part of almost every day for two years. And Joe was an autodidact. He taught himself jazz. He taught himself poetry. He taught himself philosophy. He took all these books out of the prison library and discussed them with Al. Al felt himself to also be kind of a plant through the asphalt, if you will. He came from a family that wasn't interested in in academics or at least his immediate family had an uncle who was his mentor. Mm -hmm. But he didn't fit in with his own family where they kind of brawled and ran businesses and did sports. And all Al wanted to do was read and think deeply and solve problems. 
So Al kind of saw a little of himself in him. So how well did he know him versus how much was he projecting? I can't parse that, but it was a complicated thread. Well, when you were describing their conversations and then your stepfather's background, I was thinking, I wonder if Al felt like this was a case of one wrong turn in his own youth could have landed him in the same situation as as Joseph DeSalvo. So, you know, this is somebody who deserved a certain amount of respect as he got to know him. Do you think that that kind of makes sense to him? Maybe they had a very similar feel growing up in, in some ways. In today's language, Al's background was one of a lot of privilege. Um, His parents didn't go to college, but they were educated. They lived a middle-class life. They owned a restaurant that did extremely well. Joe arguably didn't have a chance from the start. His father just couldn't hold a job, was clearly damaged physically by things he'd done in his youth. Um, emotionally and physically abused his mother and and Joe watched that. So in that way, they were very different. But Al viewed his own childhood as one where he was somewhat neglected. His view of himself was that his father and mother were so invested in this restaurant, which they were at 24 hours a day, seven days a week by Al's account. And his mother was never home. When she was home, he overheard her crying in the other room because this isn't the way she wanted to raise her children. She didn't want, you know, per her husband's demands, go off to work every day. The father was not at his graduation. The father was not present for for family events. And they ate all their meals at the restaurant. He doesn't remember any family conversations that weren't about the restaurant. That was Al's view of his own childhood. And he used to go to other people's houses for dinner. He was invited to classmates' houses for dinner. And he went almost as an anthropologist to see how other families did it. Wow. And other families, in his view, did it better. They paid more attention to their children. So, yeah, Al was gambling after school in in vacant lots, and Al felt he had nobody looking out for him. So I think even though he was wrong on the facts, I think Al's experience of his life was that he could have become Joe. Hmm. He could have taken a wrong turn and become Joe. And really, isn't that what matters is our own perspective on our lives. Let's turn to David Troy for a moment, who's the police officer, who we will really become involved with in a little bit as we approach talking about how Joseph DeSalvo is released and what happens. Who is David Troy? David Troy is the youngest son of 10 children. His father died young. And, you know, talk about fate and nature versus nurture. His father died of what the family would gradually in an age of genetics come to realize was a faulty gene. And all the men in the family died young until they developed a test for hypocholesteremia and could put them on powerful drugs. So that, that family legacy started early. And his father died at the wheel of the car driving his sister, uh, Dave's sister, to the dentist. And so that's one of Dave's first memories is a knock on the door and his mother completely falling apart. And he was her favorite son. So he was the one that she depended on. And he went through his life 
basically trying to make his mother happy and his mother not cry. He ended up breaking her heart in a lot of ways by marrying a lovely Italian girl, but she wasn't Irish. And, and this was his mother's dream for him, was a nice Irish girl. And he made it up to her by taking a safer job. Um, he had been working in a gas station, but that was with cars and cars killed his father. So he took a safer job and joined the police force where his hours would be better. And it was Stamford. Police officers didn't get hurt in Stamford. And in fact, David Troy's death was the first death of a police officer in the line of duty in Stamford, Connecticut. So he was, by description, just a happy, kind, friendly, sunshiny man with a, a good singing voice. And he was like my stepfather, only trying to do the right thing most of the time. And it was the figuring out what the right thing was that sometimes got challenging. So Joseph DeSalvo and your stepfather have been working together in this lab for two years, and he's approaching his parole meeting, right? Does anyone else vouch for Joseph, or is it just Al? It's not just Al. In 1924, um, Nathan Leopold and Richard Loeb became infamous. And, you know, not every audience knows who they are, but I'm betting yours does. Yeah. Even those who don't recognize the name anymore recognize the two University of Chicago students who, thinking they are so brilliant that they can literally get away with murder, pick a 14-year-old boy off the streets essentially at random, murder him, and become the first crime of the century when the local papers go crazy. Um, spoiler alert, they did not get away with murder. They ended up at the Stateville Penitentiary in Chicago, Illinois, and they were bored. They had 99 years to life to fill. And so what they began to do is take bets Every time one of their own, one another prisoner was released on parole, parole was fairly new in 1920s. Every time someone was released on parole, they would take a bet as to whether or not that person would come back or make good. Oh. And they discovered that they had a remarkable success rate. Oh. They're betting on recidivism and they're effectively inventing parole prediction. Wow. Because sociology was brand new again in the 1920s. And there were sociologists at the University of Chicago um, who were studying this, and they came to know these men. And they, first both of them together, then after Loeb's death, Leopold with far more rigor and, and determination, they published results under pseudonyms. They <laughs> created a parole prediction instrument that their problem with the existing science, if you will, or academics was it only asked questions that measured who a man was, and these were all men we're talking about, um, who a man was when they came into prison. They didn't account for how that man may have changed while in prison. So they recreated the questionnaire that prisoners asking for parole took that predicted their chances of, of success. And that was the instrument that was used when Joe DeSalvo applied for parole. And it said that he had far better than even odds of, of succeeding. 
And my stepfather went and read all of Leopold and Loeb's work that convinced him that this was an effective document. So it convinced my stepfather to support him. And the warden supported parole for this man for all the same reasons. The way the state of Illinois determines parole is this particular instrument, and look, he passed. So he's released in 1960, is that right? He was released in May of 1960. Oh, man. This happens quickly, just two months. It goes downhill very, very quickly. So he just went off on the bus from Chicago to Norwalk, Connecticut. Um, Al does not even remember saying goodbye. It was He just left. He went to Norwalk because that's where Al, during medical school, volunteered in a lab, in a research lab. It's where Al got his love of research, was in a lab in Norwalk, Connecticut. And he is working for a man named Norman Boaz, who Al kind of found from friends of friends of friends. You know, he he wrote to the people he knew at the hospital saying, I have this man, he's trained to do this sort of lab work. And he hears back from this man named Norman Boaz, who, as it turns out, is, you know, again, I like rabbit holes, is the grandson of a man named Ernest Boaz, who is essentially, he's been labeled the father of anthropology. Norman sees himself as interested in the essence of people and what makes them tick and how people can change. And he kind of came to this in a way like Al, like, I am going to help people be better. And here is a person being presented to me. So he accepted Joe into his lab in that spirit. Where Joe was living was a postcard that he found tacked on the wall of the hospital from a woman who rented out the house over her garage and sent her postcard saying there was this house available to places where she thought trustworthy people might work. So she sent it to the hospital, they put it on the board, and then there was Joe ringing her doorbell and became her tenant. So Joe had a tidy life for a period of time. There are hints that he was dating a nurse that he met and learning that his modest salary in the real world didn't go as far as it needed to go to properly entertain a young woman. Hmm. There were subtler hints, but looking back, my interpretation is that Joe began to miss the scaffolding of prison. Hmm, yeah. So he reached out to Al in on July 4th, over July 4th weekend, where he'd been out for two months. And... Al was on vacation at the time back in Norwalk, where his family still lived. He had come east from Chicago to see his parents and, very importantly, to get his wife to the beach because their third child had been born and she was having severe postpartum depression. And what they would eventually recognize was the first signs of the schizophrenia that would lead her to die on the streets many years later. All he knew, not all those details, but he knew she was in trouble. And so he 
came with their three young children under the age of three, left those children with his parents, and Al's only concern was to get her some rest time by the beach. So when Joe called his house the night before he was supposed to leave and said, I need to see you, I think Joe was looking for the structure and security and reminder of who he could be. Mm -hmm. And Al, while recognizing that there was a note of something dire in Joe's voice, said, I can't see you now. I'll see you when I get back. And that's when Joe went out and bought a gun. And it was while Al was at the beach that Joe, you know, looked for a tavern to hold up, which was his, you know, that's what he did before. And he found the one he found um, and things unraveled as they did. So describe what that scene is like. This is in Stamford, 4th of July weekend. How far is that from where he's staying at this house? It's about, I guess, a 15 or 20 minute drive on roads as they existed then, mm-hmm. probably. Okay. And he, he tried a few towns first. He acted in a way that shows some hesitance right? It was not purposeful. He didn't march out of his house and, you know, find the first available place. He went from place to place. He found reasons not to stay. There seemed to be a reluctance in his pattern if you want to read something into it. Mm -hmm. He left the house at about four or five in the afternoon. He did not arrive at this tavern until 1030-ish at night. And he put tape on his face as some sort of disguise and put a newspaper over his gun and walked up to the bartender and said, give me everything in the cash register. It was not much, as with so many armed robberies where there's a cash register involved, nobody can agree on how much money there was. Mm -hmm. But it was, you know, double digits at best. And he got his money and then he ran. And... David Troy had had the kind of night where he answered some, you know, drunks who can't stand up and a woman who was hit slightly by a car while crossing the street and sort of minor little events. And he ended up taking the call at the tavern when others also said they would take it, but then backed off because Dave was already there. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he got there and people were saying he went that away. So they ran in back into a sort of alley behind this tavern and shots were fired. And David Troy was hit several times. The shot that killed him was in his heart. He bled out in an alleyway. Testifying later, Joe would insist that David shot first and... In a book full of a lot of upsetting things, that is the one thing that his children couldn't let stand Hmm. when they read the draft. They said there is nothing about the man they know that is consistent with him shooting first. Can that be proven? I don't think it can, right? No. And so what I did is I, I created an end note that said the children object to this, right? All we have, the only description we have of what happened in that alley, there were two people there and one's dead, and the other testified against his lawyer's advice at trial and says that the cop shot first. And I quoted their daughter as saying, shouldn't somebody challenge that? He was a known liar. And I basically wrote in the end note, yes, somebody should. So, you know, take this at face value or not. But I don't know 
who shot first. I don't think we will ever know who shot first. So David dies in this alleyway and Joe is in the wind. How do they identify him if he is a 20-minute drive away from where this tavern was? In part because of Al Tarloff. He is sitting on a beach that morning in Madison, Connecticut, and there are a group of men at the blanket next to them reading a newspaper. And Al sees the headline that a police officer is dead in Stamford. And he borrows the newspaper and gets, sees the police sketch that looks a little too much like this man that he knows, the same man who was desperate to see him um, a day or so ago. And this was the original story that he told me. This was where I came into the story in the first place, was Al told me about sitting on this blanket and seeing this newspaper article. And then the decision he made absolutely boggled my mind. He decided that if it's possible for this man who he knows to be a cop killer, well, he's going to go find out. Hmm. So he went, first thing he did is he called Joe, the lab where Joe should have been working, and he wasn't there that day. And so then he called the landlady's house and the landlady said, you know, he's out. So he got in his car and he drove back to Norwalk and he knocked on the door to find him. And the landlady, there'd been a lot of comings and goings at that house by then because Joe had come home. He'd been shot in the leg. He couldn't go to work, which is why he wasn't at work when Al called him. His co-workers came to check on him because he said he wasn't feeling well. And so the landlady kind of exasperated because now here was this other guy at the front door said he's, you know, he's not here. He went to the airport. Um, Dr. Boaz, his boss at the, the lab, drove him. And Al, already somewhat suspicious, said he went to the airport. And the woman said, yes, his brother was killed last night in a motorcycle accident and he had to go to the funeral. And Al, who had not called the police to report him when he recognized the police sketch because he wasn't sure, and had not called to report him when this man didn't show up for work, and then what you know wasn't at the house he was renting. But the idea that his brother was killed the night before was just a coincidence too much for Al. Was that this? This was the one thing he just couldn't believe. That was ridiculous. Of course, that's not true. He's fleeing town and Al called the cops. Wow. The irony being that his brother was, in fact, killed in a motorcycle accident. Oh, wow. The night before the cop was shot. And he was going to his brother's funeral. And that's where they caught him. Oh, my God. They caught him in Chicago at his brother's funeral. This must have just made Al sick to his stomach as this starts to unfold. He must have just felt like, what did I do? The idea of Al's responsibility, again, was a lot of what started my interest in this story. How responsible are you yeah. for somebody you vouch for? It's for somebody you believe in. Where, where does your responsibility lie? Al called the warden and called his mentor, who had overseen his work at Stateville for the Army Research Projects, and both of them basically said, be quiet, let us do the talking. Um, they probably said it in 1960s version, but that's what they said. And so Al directed all questions to the warden. He directed it all back to the people in charge. 
And interestingly, while Al was talked about in the newspapers, he was never mentioned. Hmm. So there were was almost no one in his life who knew what he'd done, the part he'd played in this. Um, at the trial, Joe talks about a doctor who he met at the penitentiary who found him this job, but nobody ever mentioned who Al was. So this was a a private internal thing. It was not a public flagellation. It It was internal. How did Al carry that through the rest of his life? He became an expert in the social determinants of health. Hmm. He became an expert in what can we do to intervene early in life that is non-medical and will give people better lifelong outcomes. And this was spurred by his experience with Joe. I brought him to meet the cops' kids. Wow. Which was one of the most profound experiences I've ever had. And we met at one of the cop's children's houses, and it was all three children, their partners, and all of their children. So David Troy's in-laws, children, and grandchildren. Interestingly, it was the children who had the most questions. David's grandchildren, but the youngest generation in the room who had the most questions. And wanted to know the most about their grandfather, who, of course, Al had never met. He had changed the lives of everybody in this room, but he had never met anyone alive or dead that was a member of the Troy family. And they talked for a good hour and a half about what Al did and why he did it and what it was about Joe that made Al vouch for him. And at the very end, one of the grandkids just said, you know, thank you so much for, for coming. This must have been hard. Hmm. Is there anything else you want to make sure to tell us? And Al said, I just wanted to say I'm sorry. Not because I wrote that letter. Given all the information I had, I made the best decision I could have at the time. And I would do that again. What I would change is when Joe called and needed to see me, I would find a way to see him. And one of the the kids said, would that have, you know, changed anything? Wasn't he basically a train wreck? And Al said, I think eventually he would have bought a gun. And eventually he probably might even have killed someone. But it wouldn't have been that day. Right. And it wouldn't have been your father. Wow. And for that, I am sorry. The theme that you had touched on which I think is so important, is that there is a reason why he ended up in prison to begin with. And when he came out, it wasn't solved. No amount of compassion from Al, no amount of whatever training he had in prison or any of that fixed what needed to be fixed. I think the question I have for you is, do you or did Al think that had it not been for that one letter, he would have still been in prison. Was it really down to Al's letter, given the Leopold and Loeb stuff and, and all the other things? He was a model prisoner, it sounded like. I think no one knows. Yeah. I think he probably would have been released on parole at some point. If not at that hearing, then at the next hearing. Yeah. I think it's never one thing. I think it's a confluence of various events that if you change one of them, then you can arguably change everything. It's like meeting your future spouse at a cafe. What if I didn't go to the cafe? 
That's the one everyone goes to. You would have met someone else. Yeah. That's the one we all come up with. And you go on couple dates, right? The dinner conversation, at least in my experience, almost always comes. So how'd you guys meet? Yeah. And the how did you guys meet so often involves some huge coincidence that changed everything as if there's this, these other lives that we didn't lead, these other tracks. There are a lot of train analogies in this book but the other tracks that you didn't travel on. And again, in a way, this is deeply profound. In another way, it's just everything everyone knows all the time. And what I did is I took a decade and I sketched the particular sets of facts and coincidences and choices and, and decisions that led to this one result. I could write this book about us. How did you and I end up having this conversation at this particular moment. Tell me, because we know what happens with David, we know what happens with Al, what happens with Joseph DeSalvo when he returns to prison? Joe, as I mentioned, testified. He took the stand in his own defense. It was very much against his lawyer's advice. And not only did he testify, He sat on the stand, and by all description, including the sister of David Troy's widow, who I spoke to at length and was sitting next to her during this, he testified staring directly at the widow the entire time. And her reading of it was not creepy, which that sentence can sound like, and not threatening, which that sentence can sound like, but rather confessional. Well, this is all I can give you. And so I am giving it to you. Answers. Answers. It is against my own interests, but it's all I have. And he testified for the better part of two days and told everything, which is an awful lot of how I know all about him. And then he went back to his prison cell. And the next day, I don't know, because things like this just keep happening in this story. There was an epic snowstorm. And the entire state of Connecticut was was locked in. And so nobody could go for the final closing arguments the next day. Hmm. And the day after that, they plowed through the snow to go get Joe to take him to court. And he was dead in his cell. And they found a slight slit in his mattress where they guess he had hid the 58 second all that he had gotten during his 58 nights in prison because the man was a creature of prison and he knew if you say, I can't sleep, they give you a second all. Wow. He also had been taught by Al how to make sure prisoners swallow their medicine because in a drug trial, that's very important. Mm-hmm. And he had also apparently learned how to fool guards when they are trying to make sure you swallow your medicine. So he saved all of these 58 second all and took them all at once. And he left a note. On one side, he quoted Emerson because that was the kind of guy he was. And on the other side, he apologized to Al. How did Al feel about all of that? What a journey with this one man. He didn't tell the story an awful lot until it came along um, 50 years later. So it was not a point of pride. It was, I think, a subject of some guilt. And I think it it sort of sent his career in a different direction. He was going to figure out how to figure this out because that was just what he did. Well, what did he figure out ultimately? What is his legacy in this field of 
trying to help people before they hurt people? I think where he landed is kind of reflected by a scene in the book. There is another man, his name is Dante. He was the brother of the woman who would become David Troy's wife. Mm -hmm. He too was from a family of Italian immigrants. Um, He too had an abusive father who was a drunk who disappeared on the family after traumatizing them first. He too went AWOL from the army and got into fights and was a 'er ne'er-do-well and had the police on his heels many times. He did not have a police record, but he wasn't heading anywhere good. Mm -hmm. And he ended up using the GI Bill to go to college. And a professor there returned his first philosophy paper with glowing reviews. And it was part of a lesson where the bottom line of this lesson was the difference between a kid who does well and who falls apart is somebody who cares about them before the age of seven. Hmm. And Dante had those people in his life. Al had those people in his life. And Joe DeSalvo never did. In a way, I hate the moral of my own book which was this killer probably never had a chance because of everything that happened to him, some of it before he was born. But Al's takeaway was, yes, but what is our responsibility as a society to see that there are more of those people in the lives of more of those children? So that's where he landed in in his life and in his career. And that's what he could live with. So was he able to be there, you know, when you do your first book signings, when the book is launched and all of that? The pub date for this book was May 28th of 2023. And that was the day I went to his funeral. The dedication says to Alvin Tarloff, thank you for entrusting me with your memories. I chose the word entrusting with a lot of thought. He didn't just trust me to tell the story. He handed over his memories to me for safekeeping. So I figure he gave me a story and he told me to tell it and kind of knew that if I didn't, it would disappear. So I went and I told his story. If you love historical true crime stories, check out the audio versions of my books, The Ghost Club, All That Is Wicked, and American Sherlock. This has been an Exactly Right production. Our senior producer is Alexis Amorosi. Our associate producer is Christina Chamberlain. This episode was mixed by John Bradley. Curtis Heath is our composer. Artwork by Nick Toga. Executive produced by Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, and Danielle Kramer. Follow Wicked Words on Instagram and Facebook at Tenfold More Wicked and on Twitter at Tenfold More. And if you know of a historical crime that could use some attention from the crew at Tenfold More Wicked, email us at info at tenfoldmorewicked.com. We'll also take your suggestions for true crime authors for Wicked Words. 